let's begin this way. So we have been opening up, we're basically taking the training time that we kick off our gatherings with, and we are journeying through some of kind of like the big rocks, big ideas, and pieces of our MC handbook. So uh, see some of them on the tables. We've got more over here, and it's really just a tool that we developed for those who are in a microchurch, thinking about maybe joining a microchurch or starting a microchurch. And it's one of those things that we just really want to become more and more of a kind of language, things that we understand, especially as new people are coming into our community. Uh, some of the things we do are a little bit different uh, for those who have had like church background that's a little bit different. So um, just a great thing for us to kind of process back through. So to kind of set up our time, um, I'm going to begin with a very short story. Uh, so I know some of you know my family like and us really well, but some of, some of you are relatively new. So, so our family crew, Megan and I, back in the back there in the jumper, been married for 20 years. Our oldest Paige is next to her. Uh, she's 16 in high school. Chloe's 13 in middle school. And then we have a little guy who's nine named Jackson. And um, the story is about Jackson. Jackson is 100% boy. Um, so it's still, it's still relatively new for us because we felt like we kind of got the hang with it, raising girls. And then we have like this energizer bunny who's always building or destroying things, sometimes in the same minute, uh, goes 100 miles per hour until his head hits the pillow and he's out. But things like sitting in class, quietly listening all day are still things that we're, we're working on. So last year was a little bit tough. Uh, we had to have lots of conversations. He had a very strict teacher at Moreland Heights, probably the most strict teacher, great teacher, just has high standards, and sitting still, listening, classroom behavior was a constant conversation. So we had lots of father-son conversations late at night where it's like we had to talk about emotions and how we deal with those emotions. And it's like, buddy, it's okay to get mad or to feel sad or frustrated. Um, those feelings are valid, but it doesn't mean you can punch somebody. You know, it doesn't mean that you can throw a Nintendo controller across the room because you lost the video game. And so we talked about, you know, like those emotions are valid. You can feel those emotions, but you get to choose what you do with those emotions. You get to choose how you act and behave. So this week we got, he got his first report card of the year, like progress report. And his high scores were uh, classroom work habits and behavior. Right, so we're, I was really pumped about this. We made a really big deal about it. Like, you're doing so good. New teacher, new year, we're off to a new start. And so we're processing, and I'm repeating back to him, like, the things we've talked about. Like, just trying to, you're doing great. I want it to stick. Once again, buddy, like, you know, you're going to feel things at times that aren't pleasant emotions. But what you do with those emotions, that's what you can control. And you're doing so good, right? And he said, right, Dad. He said, by the way, this Saturday when we watch football, are you going to use bad words again? Like the little guy was hitting me right between the eyes. And we were already in a teachable moment. And then it morphed into a different kind of teachable moment where dad <laughs> realized that I had some repenting to do to my children uh, for the 20 years of sorrow, uh, football sorrow, Cornhusker sorrow, that came out through words that dad should not be using last Saturday. And so I went from classroom to classroom, or I'm sorry, bedroom to bedroom, and had to have this conversation individually with each of our kids. And, and ask for forgiveness. And uh, uh, I, I, sh I share that one because I'm human. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, definitely trying to model repentance for my kids when they inevitably see that dad is not perfect and needs forgiveness. But I think for, for all of us, there are seasons when we do it better than others. 
right? And so there's some seasons where it's like, all right, I feel like I'm humming along doing pretty well, generally speaking. Like, as a father, as a dad, as a disciple, um, you know, there's no, like, glaring sin issues, at least that I can see in my life, like, in that season. Uh, More or less, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. And then there are those seasons where you're doing more probably surviving than thriving. Um, You're having to model repentance to your kids. But if you're really honest, you're like, I think if I had a spiritual report card, progress report, this, you know, right now in this season, it wouldn't be pretty, you know? Like, I might be kind of close to being held back a grade uh, if there's not some kind of intervention. And right now, I will say, like in this season, and this is kind of shaping some of what I wanted to share this evening, uh, it's been, a, some of you know, it's been like a really tough season like for a family, just uniquely challenging. So um, some of you know, I took a full-time job to make it possible for Charlie to come on, take some of the financial burden uh, off of our church family in this season so we could transition well, come together well, become autonomous. Um, and then about five weeks ago, Megan lost her job uh, at the same company that I still work for, which has been very interesting. Uh, and then this week I found out that a new round of cuts are coming and uh, my days are numbered. And so we're, we're in this season where it's been really tough. And one of the things like... Uh, I don't know how you're wired, but for me, like I can tend to be relatively gracious towards other people, but really hard on myself. And so in a season like this where like the pressure is turned up, the heat's turned up, um, I found myself like really, really frustrated at times. Mostly some of the things because of things that I have done that I need to repent for, but mostly because of things like I can't do or I can't do them as well as I want to, right? Like, so even today, like when it comes to putting together this training portion, like I'm working really long hours we're ju- I'm trying to, at this point, just stay employed long enough for Megan to find what's next so we're both not, like, needing to file for unemployment or something like that. You know, and even, like, preparing for this, like, it's always last second. I've just got, like, it used to be I could, like, simmer on it, sit on it, write it, you know, walk through it. Usually, like, I'm throwing stuff on here, and then I'm getting here as fast as I can. I'm wearing a hat today not because I thought it looked cool. So I didn't have time to do my hair. You know what I mean? Like, that's just kind of like the life stage that we're in. And, and for me in those times, like I, that's when I tend to make mistakes. And I get really, really impatient with myself, right? And I start to ask questions like, how have I not like mastered this yet? Like, how is it that I'm relearning lessons, basic lessons, uh, having to relearn them at 41 years old, things that I learned like so many different years ago. Um, what is, what is, uh, what is wrong with me? And so I don't know if like if you ever find yourself in that place. Um, some of them might be family of origin kinds of things. Maybe it's been like church spiritual formation kinds of things where there's a standard that something inside you tells you you need to aspire to and to achieve. And when that doesn't happen, get really really impatient with ourselves. You get very, you can get frustrated, you can get angry, you can get resentful. Uh, you can find yourself grieving maybe the season that you're in. Um, and here's, here's the risk. Here's why I want to just like speak this out loud. I think there's a huge risk when we find ourselves in those seasons. And that is that we can begin to assume that God feels about us how we feel about us. Right, and that disappointment, that discouragement, that anger, that sorrow, that frustration, that why can't I get this right stuff going on in our head and heart, we can begin to actually 
attribute that to God. Like he's like this disapproving father who's kind of like always looking over our shoulder. And he sees, he's, he's, he's watching always, but he's happy never. How have you not figured out this out yet? How are you still making the same old mistakes? Right? Why can't you be more like your brother? Why can't you be more like your sister? You can't, I'm not even sure you're like you're my kid. Because if you were, you would have figured this out yet, and you're still not getting it. And depending, so depending on your, your origin story and some of the experiences you've had in church, uh, this can be really, really tough to shake. Right? For some of us, this has been a part of our story, and we actually think about God in those terms, in those ways, as if he feels about us. Um, in those ways. And so I say that because, you know, as we talk about, like, let's say, microchurches and this kind of work, there's a certain kind of person and people that tend to find their way into being a part of communities like this. And they, generally speaking, this is a generalization, but generally speaking, they tend to be the kind of people who, who are willing to try new things, to learn new things, tend to be doers, right, that want to be a part of a solution. Uh, people that maybe have angst around the church, but, but busybody types sometimes, if we're not careful. And the thing is, if you're not careful and you rush into, say, the work of being a part of a microchurch, starting a microchurch, if that's the posture that you bring in, um, you're going to mow some people over. And you're going to come in with a ton of expectations. So one of the things that we've seen along the way, ex- come in with expectations of, hey, finally we're going to get church right. Right? It's like, I've had angst about this and this and this and this. And while we might like sidestep some of those pain points with like our model, I tend to like our model, but it's just a model. Just so you know, the moment you get into microchurch life, you're going to have a whole list of new pain points and frustrations. Right? If you come in guns a-blazing and you haven't actually done the work to learn how to stop doing the work and rest in the person of Jesus and take a breath, then you're going to bring all those expectations on yourself and around the people around you, and you're going to do a lot of damage potentially to yourself and to the people around you. So this is the reason when you open up that microchurch handbook, before you get anywhere in that book where we're talking about form and structure and model and rhythms and any of the what's of spiritual life together, you're going to read on page five before you do anything else, slow down. Right? And it's like, and I think we repeat it. Say, no, really, take a breath, slow down, and learn how to rest in the person of Jesus. Uh, and that has to be the very first thing. Because if you don't, and you don't recognize and come to learn like just how good and gracious and patient your Heavenly Father really is with you, um, you're going to bring in all of your impatience into, into that work. And you're not going to have the patience to love the people in front of you uh, the way you need to or to walk at the Spirit's pace. You're probably going to try to rush ahead. So, so all that to say, like, what I want to do just in our short time together is just slow down, take a breath, own up just internally. You don't have to speak it out loud, but just to the impatience that we often bring to so many of these things we do, even in the name of God. And refocus on the person of Jesus and how he actually responded to some of the closest people in his life. When we might expect impatience, he came with grace and patience over and over again, reflecting us 
the heart of the Father. So that said, just for context, I know you know this, uh, but these are the people who had like the front row seat to everything that God was doing in and through Jesus. Right? So I don't know if you ever watched like The Chosen or you're reading through the Gospels and you're just like, you have that thought. It's like, it would have been so amazing to be there, like to see it. You know, like we were watching The Chosen a few, I don't know how long ago, one of the kids were like, I just want to hug Jesus and like be there, you know? These guys got to. Like they were there to see like lepers healed in real time, right? They got to walk with Jesus. They got to hear him teach and then get to be around the campfire at night and actually debrief what was talked about. Uh, They were there, spent lots of time. They got the best of Jesus's time and you would expect them to get it, but perhaps not surprisingly, they often did not. So uh, first, um, we'll look at Philip. This is John uh, 14. Philip is part of that inner circle. This is what we read in in John 14. So Thomas said to him, uh, Jesus basically said, I'm going to go prepare a place uh, to, to take you with me when the time comes. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know know the way? And Jesus answered, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. And Philip said, Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. You can almost like see Jesus' body language. He's like, oh my gosh, this guy still isn't getting it. But here's how he responds in this moment. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So where Jesus might have lit him up, he does not. We, show, we see Jesus showing a tremendous amount of grace and patience with this guy who's witnessing all these things and clearly has heard Jesus say this over and over again. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. I don't do any, the Son doesn't do anything that he doesn't already see the Father already doing. Right? Anybody who has seen the Son has seen the Father. Just going right over Philip's head. And Jesus responds with so much patience and so much grace and basically says, brother, I don't know how you're not getting this yet. And I know that you can't believe this just yet or get all of it. But if nothing else, just believe as much as you can based on what you're saying, because we're not done yet. Right? Just as much as you can in this moment. Just try. Tremendous patience and grace. I love that. Uh, John 20. uh, We'll look at a very famous one. Thomas. Poor Thomas. The Thomas we know is doubting Thomas, right? One of the weakest moments in his life, vulnerable place, and it gets enshrined in our Holy Scripture for eternity. The poor guy. But this is what we read. John 14. Oh, no, John 20, sorry. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So they're seeing Jesus resurrected for the first time. He wasn't there for it. So the disciples, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, we've seen Jesus But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands for myself, and I put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, 
that his disciples were in the house again. That had, by the way, had to be a very long week. The disciples are on fire. They just saw Jesus alive. It's, you know it's the only thing they're talking about. And Thomas, all week long, is just the guy on the outside. Like, he didn't see it. He can't believe it. He doesn't believe it. He won't believe it. Not yet. Got to be a long week. But a week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. And then, look at who he turns to first. Then he turns, he said to Thomas, and this is his response to Thomas, who's been doubting for, for a week. Go ahead, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. And now stop doubting in belief. Right? I love that. Right? Such a gracious, loving, patient moment, like a tender moment. Like Jesus could have really berated him at this point, but he doesn't. Show some kindness, gracious, fine. Take a look at my hands. Put your finger on my side. I'm alive. I'm here. Now stop doubting and believe. I love that. And then, of course, perhaps the most dramatic example that we have would be, uh, amongst Jesus's friends anyway, would be Peter, right? So uh, without going all into the narrative, right, Jesus, or Peter is warned by Jesus, like, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, not me, right? He's always like fiery, self-confident, just a little bit belligerent sometimes. Um, But he does. He does end up denying Jesus, obviously afraid for his life, afraid he's going to be imprisoned and who knows what else uh, because he's associated with Jesus. And, of course, Peter is undone in his guilt and his shame, like his disappointment with himself. He is Mr. All-Self-Confident Alpha Male, Totally failed. Jesus called his shot. Um, He's just beside himself. And yet Jesus' response to Peter was not to kick him out of the club or berate him or demote him. He actually ended up making him a key leader in the early church. Uh, Instead, he embraces him. Um, He loves him. And then he empowers him to be a part of the movement. Like nothing nothing has changed. And then, of course, it shouldn't surprise us that we read words like this, like from Peter's mouth. Uh, this is 2 Peter 3.9. He writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he's what? He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Right? And we could do this all day, by the way. You know, we could literally go through the entire Old Testament. Of course, he just referenced Paul. We could go to Saul of Tarsus would be another incredible example. Right? He, he literally took it upon himself to squash out the Jesus movement in Jer- Jerusalem. He's overseeing the murder of young leaders in the early church. And then he takes his show on the road to go kill more. Jesus blinds him. God takes away his sight and then gives him, heals him in more ways than one. And then he becomes, my goodness, he's making disciples, planting churches all over the place, which is incredible. And I would say, I would also argue, you know, I think if there's one person that if God wanted to take out, the early church would have been the most relieved by, it was Saul. And yet God meets him in loving kindness and patience. Took the church a while to come around and trust him, but eventually he ended up being this incredible, incredible part of the movement of Jesus, right? And I say all that because God... I think it's just important for us to just circle back sometimes and remember like God isn't just powerful 
but he is, he is abundantly patient, which is why we find Paul writing things like this to one of his protégés, Timothy. This probably some surprises, but it's everywhere. Formally, he says, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received, received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display what? His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And I say all this, friends, because like, this is where the work of anything we do begins. It has to. Like sitting in this truth, reminding one another of this truth, that you don't have to aspire to some superhero status to be a part of what God is doing. Uh, God actually doesn't ask you to accomplish great things for him. Um, he doesn't need you to save the world on his behalf. The Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. All of creation has been put under Jesus' feet, and he sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes on our behalf. Like, God is already in every place that, that we go. And so whether you're in a season where you are killing it spiritually right now, or whether you're in a season where you're asking yourself repeatedly, like, why do I have to keep learning and relearning the same lessons? Why do I fall short? Why can't I get this? That God doesn't feel about you maybe how you feel about yourself in this, in this moment. He is kind, he is gracious, he is loving, and he is so patient. And so I want to do this. What time are we looking at? 5.15, okay. Nope, let's do it. <laughs> I'm going to make this short. If you would, I just want you to close your eyes for a second. Because I think part of this has to do with the way we even think about the way God works and how spiritual formation works. I'm just going to read for you a short reflection that I put together. I think that sometimes what we want or even expect is for the work of God in us or in this world to be like this tsunami, like this big, giant event, this powerful event that swoops in and in an instant hits and then it leaves everything in its wake different than it was before. But I don't actually think that's how God typically works. I think that his work in our world and in each of our lives is more like a small, steady mountain stream. And while beautiful, it's not terribly impressive at first glance. But in his slow, patient, loving faithfulness, flowing through the same place year after year, that small stream will actually change the form and landscape of that entire mountain over time. Year after year, the water slowly cuts through the rocks, finding a way through the mountain, creating valleys that didn't exist before, creating entire ecosystems that weren't there before, changing the very shape of that mountain. Incredible works like the Grand Canyon, for example, was created by a faithful stream that became a river that never stopped flowing. And over the course of many, many, many years, it created this incredible work that is now undeniable and makes our jaws drop open in awe. But it didn't happen overnight there, and it doesn't happen overnight in us. And I think that is maybe the best picture I can think of how God so often works in our lives and in this world. It is the slow, faithful, ever-flowing stream of God's patient work in our lives that changes us over time. So, you can
can open your eyes. We're going to go to the tables for a little bit. And I know we can't like deep dive into this, but if nothing else, I hope it just plants a seed that maybe sticks with you this week and maybe you can process with your friends, family, microchurch. But two questions. One, I'm curious to know how hard is it for you to really believe this, that God is actually this good and this patient with us. And two, if it's true, how ought it to change the way we treat ourselves and the people around us? Sound good? All right. Ready, set, go. Let's do it.